Welcome to the Makeshift CMO, a startup marketing podcast for founders and early stage company teams. All right, everybody, I am super lucky to be joined today by one of my newest virtual friends on LinkedIn through this wonderful platform, Angela Ferrante. She is the CEO and founder of Laudable coming at us live out of Washington, D.C. She's on a mission to make it easy and fast to get customer stories on video and thus make B2B marketing a little less boring and a little less stodgy. So I reached out to Angela because I feel like I resonate with that. B2B can be quite boring. We're lucky to have you. Awesome. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. Awesome. So let's get into the classic fun origin story stuff. Why B2B marketing? It's not taught in schools. How did you end up there? Yeah. So I sort of stumbled my way into marketing. I was doing a lot of really business development, sales, strategic partnership related work in the energy industry. I know we'll get into that in a second, but ended up meeting the founders at Spark Fund. This was back in maybe 2013 and joined early on as the founding CMO, really with no explicit marketing experience, certainly no digital marketing experience. And so learned the hard way over many years and with a couple of really great hires. And through that journey, we were at at SparkFund, we were doing commercial energy efficiency retrofits through a subscription model. And in doing that, we were like, okay, great. We're going to get a big new customer. We're this small company. We're going to tell that story. We're going to get really loud about it. And that's going to help win us all this new business. Awesome. And then we'd get a big customer and we'd be like, hmm, okay, well, how do we, you know, what's the playbook? How do we tell this story? How do we get loud about this? And how do we make other people care? And we started doing what everybody does, which is write a PDF case study. And we'd print them out and we'd go to conferences and we'd sit there and no one cared about our PDF case study. No one wanted to take the PDF case study at our booth. And so we went back to the drawing board and did, you know, the next logical thing, which was dive into video, much more engaging way to tell human stories. And the experience, I was sort of taken aback at the experience, right? There's so many MarTech tools, HubSpot to make content management easy, landing pages, lead pages, unbounce. There's so many MarTech tools that make otherwise tedious processes easy, but there really was nothing yet that was doing this for video production. It was like you went sort of the traditional old school approach of getting a video producer, a video agency, the whole nine yards and getting a really great video that basically could be a commercial for a whole lot of money. So we ended up spending $20,000, four and a half months and like hundreds of hours of our entire team's time getting this one video that just was so misaligned with how we actually needed to be churning out content, which is a lot short, informal, authentic feeling content all the time. And so I just, I felt like, wow, this is really crazy that this is, is the case. And in talking, doing discovery for the business, talking to other, at the time, energy company marketers and founders realized that everybody had the same issue and was like, yeah, man, B2B or video marketing for my B2B company is like biggest gap we've got in our marketing and growth strategy. So started Laudable about a year and a half ago as a way to make that a lot easier, starting with doing everything remotely. So we film from customer cameras and we skip the sort of film crew, traditional video production space. Okay. So I have to ask, were you ever involved in like AESP or those like energy efficiency? You know what I'm talking about, right? 
energy efficiency stuff, yes, did a lot of that. Association of Energy Services Professionals. Yeah, oh my God, there's so many of those acronyms. ACEEE did a lot. Yes, yes, yeah. AEE, Energy Engineers, Association of Energy Engineers. Okay, I got it. The reason I ask is for the better part of two years, I worked at a energy efficiency startup. I fell into it. I don't even, I don't know how, but the CEO is very similar to what it was for you in SparkFun. I kind of just fell into it. Mm-hmm. And so I have a background in the energy efficiency space as well. And I never thought I'd find another one. How long were you there? A little over a year and a half. I was there first marketing hire. It was a lot of fun. But you're it's a tough space for marketing though. Tough, it is tough. tough space, tough space. Yeah. But yeah, not to get off track there. Not to get off no, track. No, I love that. What a small world. It is such a small world. But talk to me about some of the sort of the state of B2B today. Give me some quick hitting points about what's wrong with the B2B marketing world. What could be better? Yeah. So from a marketing perspective, B2B is so uninspired right? Like that's the one word that I would use uninspired. We've got sort of the traditional playbooks in all aspects of marketing that are pervasive, right? It's white papers. There's a great meme sort of thing on LinkedIn from a guy, I forget his name, Lee, somebody who says white papers are for great grandpas and sweaters and nothing against great grandpas. We love grandparents, but it's just kind of true, right? Maybe there's a super technical buyer who reads a full white paper, but I've seen a couple polls on LinkedIn and I'm not convinced that anyone else is ever really reading full white papers. So there's just so much stodgy content out there and uninspired playbooks where people are defaulting to those playbooks because they need to sort of get something out without actually thinking about how could we reinvent the wheel or how could we reinvent what this looks like in a way that's more engaging for our customers. So I think there's a couple of companies out there that are doing a really awesome job of breaking the traditional mold. But for the most part, it's just pretty dull and hasn't caught up to where B2C is, which, you know, acknowledging that even B2B buyers are humans. Yes, there are different influences on a buying decision, but there's still an emotional component. So what would you say for the audience that's listening, that's about to pull trigger on a white paper campaign, and they hear you being like, Oh no, I shouldn't do that. White what papers would, are crap. <laughs> yeah. What would you no. do? What would you do instead? I mean, look, I would I'm not saying never do a white paper. Nobody should do a white paper. If you've got a marketing strategy and it's working to do white papers, you're getting leads from it, you're closing deals, whatever that is, then absolutely go for it, right? Keep with what you're doing. I'm not trying to disprove data that shows that it works. I think if you're putting out white papers because you think from a content perspective that that's what you've got to do or that that's what your buyer wants, I would pause. I would actually look and say, is this really what my buyer wants and is going to resonate with? And I think you can do that. That's not, you don't need quantitative data for that. You can talk to a couple of your real customers and say, hey, did you read our white paper? Like do some sort of informal qualitative attribution analysis. Did you read our white papers? Were they helpful in making a purchase decision? What did you really want to know that you didn't get? What did work for you to sort of engage with us and decide that you wanted to go with us as a vendor or provider? I think asking some of those questions in a qualitative way lets you start to shape what type of information, two things, right? One, what type of information do your buyer personas need to hear and want to listen to or want to watch, read, whatever it is, and B, what form should that take, right? How are they going to absorb it and consume it? And it may be multiple forms. Not everybody wants to consume everything in the same way, but drilling down and doing that research, I think is critical before just plowing forward with the rote habits of white paper plus PDF case study plus, you know, whatever else. 
I think there's a bit of a crusade going on these days. It's like death to the MQL. I don't know if you follow Chris Walker. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. He is all about that. My next question is, do you think from a B2B marketer perspective that we've gotten a little bit too obsessed with data to the point mm-hmm. where it's affecting the industry negatively? I think we're swinging back and, and, you know, I think probably different segments of the industry are different, but I think we're starting to swing back and realize that the pendulum swung too far. Because I do think for a while it was like big data, maybe five years ago, big data, everything. And people just wanted, you know, like, let's run a survey. Let's find the numbers on that. And I think that that harms people at a lot of different stages of companies. If you're really early on and you're looking for a lot of quantitative data, you're a startup you're screwed, right? You have to talk to your customers. And it, I think it, it prevents people from doing the hard work of, of having those conversations and, and listening to the qualitative information. So I think, I certainly think that can be a problem. And then on the, the larger company marketing side, I think they're kind of both important, right? You start to use a Qualtrics. And if you skip only to the metrics, the quantitative side of things, you're missing out on, on really important information. So I think some of the tools I think Gong is a good example, right? From a revenue intelligence standpoint, yes, it's data-based, but they're getting into the qualitative insights of how are humans best interacting with prospects? How are prospects best reacting? Um, So I think that mix is really important. You come from a sales background. How do you, in one sentence, describe the relationship between sales and marketing at a (laughs) startup? Yeah. (laughs) One sentence. Doesn't have to be one. Often tense, but very reliant. <laughs> doesn't doesn't um, have to be one. Care to share yeah. a story? <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah, do that. I mean, so when I think about this, I went in, I think, very naive to SparkFun thinking sales and marketing, they're always united. They work together really well. And when we first started, we actually had one team. It was a partnerships team. We didn't have a separate sales and yeah. marketing team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very naive to think that that would last as we scaled. Obviously, we grew. We needed a separate sales division. It was very, as you know, in the energy efficiency space, it's incredibly relationship driven. And that's really hard to break. So I think that the biggest challenge is really, or one of the biggest challenges I think is, is just at the top level, is there equal respect for sales and marketing? And if not, can you talk about that, right? Like what are the expectations around what sales is going to bring to the table versus what marketing is going to bring to the table? Because we at one point had sort of a, a little bit of a fight for hoarding who was going to be dealt the incredibly difficult task of sourcing leads. Like both organizations were trying to be the one to do that. Well, which was funny because it was an incredibly difficult task, right? It was not easy to just be like, we'll generate a bunch of enterprise leads to meet sales goals. So that definitely sticks with me, just really tough and has to come from the top in terms of ownership and responsibility. Lead generation for B2B, is that a marketing function or a BDR function? It depends. I don't think there's an answer for that. I think it depends on the business. At SparkFund, it was not... I think it would have been really tough for us to just turn on the switch and make it solely a marketing function. Again, because that relation or that industry is incredibly relationship driven. It wasn't how buyers wanted to interact to suddenly be getting, you know, pop-ups and banner ads and AdWords. They weren't searching for what we were providing. So in that case, you know, I think it made more sense for us as we scaled to start with slightly lower hanging fruit of having that be more of a BDR type function. But in some organizations that are heavily content driven, my company now, we don't have I mean, we're three people, so we're super small, but we don't have a BDR function. We have people who do, we have multiple people who are doing marketing and lead gen is more of a marketing task. What do you think? I'd love your thoughts on this. 
My general rule of thumb is I think the more buyers there are in the buy cycle. So if it's enterprise and there's like 20 people that need to be involved to buy, it's a sales function. But if there's only one, I think it should be a marketing Mm. function. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. So you're basically saying that if there are, it's a more complex sale and there's multiple stakeholders that need to be convinced, it goes more to sales. That was my thought process. And I was chatting with someone else the other day and it's like, so what is marketing role in that? And he came up with a really good answer. It was like, marketing is more like sales enablement in those instances. In that yeah, what right. what account-based marketing content do they need? What's the messaging? Mm-hmm. What's the content? How do you have a conversation with those people of their specific needs? I find, yeah. at least in you know my opinion, that line gets a bit blurred the more buyers mm-hmm. there are. But mm-hmm. I would imagine for Laudable, someone who's a killer growth marketer can come in and crush it for you guys. Yeah, I think so, right? Because we have, I mean, to your point and your variable, we have really one main buyer. Like, sure, there are a couple of other people that need to be bought in, but typically the head of marketing is a real fast decision maker given our price points and everything else. So there's a lot of, you know, we're just barely scratching the surface. And if anyone is a really awesome growth marketer and looking for either a part-time or full-time gig, reach out to me because that is definitely an area that we've got. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit for us to grab. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk about Laudable a little bit, a lot. As CEO, you probably have a lot to say. (laughs) Why video production? Why? There's a few other things out there, but I know we touched a little bit on this earlier, but walk me through the point where you were like, that's it. The power of a video production crew in an app, go. Yeah. So there was a really interesting stage for me before pulling the final trigger on Laudable that was summer of 2019. And I was sort of testing two different potential directions for a business and to decide, you know, what's going to be the thing that I really want to pour my heart and soul into for the next several years of my life, at least. And was doing a lot of customer discovery, right? Had sort of general pitches for these two different concepts. One of them was basically what we're doing. It's actually a slight variant, but a version of what we're doing now with Laudable in the video world. And both businesses were super interesting to me, but the thing that I could not deny and that stuck out and was like this blaring or glaring red beeping light to me of like, go here, go here was when I was talking to people, it was you know, 75% of the folks I was talking to, this was a solid pain point for. So one was a lot of the people, you know, high percentage and quantity, a large number of people needed this solution. And B, the price points were decently high, right? It wasn't like, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. There are companies spending, small businesses spending 30, 40, 50, $100,000 on this a year. So the combination of those two things, the other option was, and other things I had tested, it was either that a lot of people needed it, but the price point was super low, or only a few people needed it, but the price point was high. So to have that combination of like relatively high price point with a large percentage of people needing it was really intriguing to me. That's incredible. So you kind of went the, what are they willing to pay route in terms of building, engineering your business, correct? From a cost structure, sort of. I mean, we definitely looked at it a couple of different ways. I think we looked at what's the alternative from a video production standpoint, and we're a fraction of the cost of that. And we also looked at it from a value perspective, right? Like what value is this bringing? What are they able to do from a customer conversion perspective, from a lead gen perspective, and what seems reasonable to be charging? And then of course, yeah, like what are they going to be willing to pay? What is your 
ideal customer profile. I know I'm probably giving you nightmares right now. Like, oh God, I got to come up with the ICP. Yeah, it is a marketing org. So content creator uh, at a mid-market company. We we work with companies who are anywhere from 25 people up to 1,500, 2,000 people. Some of other companies we work with even have in-house video teams, but they want this to be a way to increase the production of this type of like customer-centric content. So marketer, B2B, definitely not B2C, and decent marketing team ranging from, you know, pretty small up to a good sized team. So how do your clients typically end up using this content? Is it LinkedIn ads? Is Mm -hmm. it distributed via like email, given to sales? What's that piece like? Oh, I like this question. So one of the things I love about video is that it's incredibly versatile and you can just repurpose the crap out of it. So one thing we're doing more and more is one customer interview. We're turning that into 10, 20 pieces of content. We might have five different videos that they're going to use in different places. And I'll get into that in a second. And then we might have audiograms, social graphics, just website, you know, case study, interactive case study pages. There's just so much to do with this. I think some of the interesting uses, yes, a lot of LinkedIn ads. So people are putting customers front and center. It feels like a more authentic ad and having a person, having a person front and center in an ad tends to do pretty well, perform pretty well. So social media ads are no brainer. We also see folks putting things in their email signatures. So sort of a link to say, just a text link that says like, watch how a customer describes why we're so awesome in 60 seconds something like that. And then you bring it to a YouTube link that has the full video or a short soundbite or clip. We're also seeing a lot of lead gen, like early prospecting efforts. So we tend to do clips. People tend to really like using clips that are objection handling. So basically we'll ask the customer a question that addresses one of the most common objections that that company's sales team here is like, why is your pricing so high or whatever it is. And then we'll turn that into a really short clip that's 30 seconds, the customer, real customer addressing, they thought the pricing was high at first, but here's why the value is so strong, whatever it is. Prospecting teams will use that to send out an email to prospect to sort of address head on that objection instead of sort of like waiting for the customer to bring it up. So those are some of my favorites, but there are a lot, there are a lot of use cases. That's amazing. I learned a lot from that. I've never really thought of it that way, but that's a good thing to think about. One other thing I'll mention on that front, because I think you see one company that stands out for me, and I think I mentioned them before, but in terms of breaking the mold on B2B marketing is Gong. And Mm -hmm. one thing that they do really well is social proof. And one lesson we've learned from them is that you can get pretty informal with your social proof. Things like screenshots of what a customer says in an email, stuff like that actually works. So we had an instance today where a client, unnamed client, their end customer rescheduled the interview and the customer wrote in a text message, oh man, WTF, I can't believe my internet is down. I really want to talk about this company. Like I really love them, that sort of thing. So we screenshotted that and sent and are sending it to say this itself could actually be really great content and an asset to use. So keeping in mind that like really informal things like that, especially on lower budgets, but, but for everybody can be really effective. I'm literally looking at Laudable's marketer spotlight stuff and I'm mm. like, oh my God, I just like, I don't know. I just got a bunch of new ideas just by looking at this page. And I think that's really, really awesome. Um, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. I love, you know, the the sort of inspiration game of seeing stuff that then generates new and and even better ideas, I think is so awesome. So I'm glad. What is the worst marketing 
jargon. You don't have to pick one. Oh God. What, what is the worst marketing jargon or phrase that you hear these days that you're like, I can't do this? Oh man. I mean, I think oldie, but goodie synergies, just like innovation and oh. synergies pretty bad. And it's funny because sometimes you find yourself wanting to say like coming up with for a, with a synonym for synergies and you end up just saying it anyway. And you're like, Ooh, cringe. I have to say there are a lot like in the case study world where you see just an entire sentence that basically sounds like it's a word generator of nonsense jargon. So it's like AI based cloud computing platform, SaaS platform. It's like, okay, one of those words on its own might make sense, but let's try to break this down into more plain text English. Let's quick hitter in terms of B2B marketing. Is there a place for platforms like TikTok or Reels? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there is. And I think it's only a matter of time. I mean, I think as in the B2B world, sometimes we make fun of those platforms because it's like, oh my God, look at how ridiculous this stuff is. My favorite is when you see sort of a side shot of someone recording a TikTok video and they're like dancing into their camera and you're just like, this is lunacy. But I think there is. And I've started to see, I consume a lot on TikTok just because it's relevant to our space and we can get ideas from that as well. Maybe not a literal interpretation, but I think stuff is migrating there. I'm starting to see, I saw, I think my first, a couple weeks ago, the first TikTok post that was reposted onto LinkedIn in my feed that I saw. And I think I have started to see a couple of B2B folks on TikTok. I don't know if you're on TikTok, but B2B folks creating their content, posting their content on TikTok was sort of like the one, two, three, four style music video, if you've seen those. I try not to be. But on the topic of something that's bite-sized and that dog being so cute, let's take a quick break. Cool. With this second half, Angela, I do want to talk about the trials and tribulations of being an entrepreneur. Obviously, you had a great career as a CMO, as a VP of marketing, leading some organizations to success. How was that transition into entrepreneurship and launching your own tech startup? So, I mean, I think I learned a lot from every hire I made at those companies, sort of rounded out skill gaps that were going to be hard for me to learn on my own, whether that was specific skills like digital marketing concepts and demand gen, or if it was just some of the softer skills, right? Like being a good manager to different types of people, being a good manager at all, figuring out how to constantly reflect and and sort of evolve your leadership style. I think those were the lessons that I learned the most in addition to just messing up, right? Like you learn best by just making the wrong decision or making a mistake and then having to stumble your way through it. So, you know, not to say learning on someone else's dime, but certainly learning in instances where it wasn't as high pressure as my very own company, that has been something I've taken with me. I'm on that path right now. That's how I view the jobs that I've been at. I told my boss, it's like, I view this job as CEO training school. Training, yeah, yeah. Uh, Like someday I'm going to do my own thing and I want to be prepared. And I hope I'm benefiting this company, but you're benefiting me by by giving me this opportunity to do leadership things that otherwise I wouldn't have gotten as a company. Well, I think it's such a great outlook. And yes, it benefits you, but it also benefits the company because what happens when you put yourself in that mindset is you become more curious, right? If you're in marketing, you actually care about how the operations group works in the company, or you might be a little more curious about how finance works or other groups that you otherwise may not learn much about. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about hiring. Let's talk about people, priorities. Laudable, I see, has four employees. What's the strategy there? 
are you guys looking to hire a ton of salespeople and scale? Or are you guys looking to hire product, 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 get this thing perfect before you scale? What is your philosophy there? Yes. I think my CTO would kill me if I didn't say first priority is hiring some tech people to help him out. Okay. Um, so definitely some developers. We need a couple of developers. This will all probably happen later, either end of quarter or early next quarter. I think marketing is a really interesting area for us. We've got I don't entirely know yet what profile or background of a person. Personally, I really love product marketers and someone who has a really solid product marketing background. We're definitely going to bring on some operations, marketing, and tech to start. In one sentence, what is Laudable looking for? You just named all those job functions, which all Mm -hmm. do different things, but across all of them, commonality, what are you looking for? In terms of the person? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we have company values, and this is a good test to see if I can remember all of them. But I think it's really somebody who is curious, kind, hardworking, and really self-reflective. That's a really important one for me is the ability to sort of evaluate where you're at, the things that you're amazing at, lean into those more, and then acknowledge the areas where you can need to continually improve. Because we're all super imperfect, right? And we're all on a journey to get better. And so when you can stay really committed to that versus being sort of fearful of the areas that you're not as good at and shying away from them, I think that makes a huge difference in any relationship, right? But in this case, in a work relationship. What does the future of work look like? I find myself asking every founder this, some who were in offices, some who have always loved working from home. What is your take on that? You know, I don't consider myself prescient when it comes to that, but I would probably say some hybrid model, right? Like I think a lot of us are experiencing missing the camaraderie, the structure of being able to go into an office, but we also really like the flexibility of working from home. So I think one thing for me that is very, very clear about where the future of work is heading is just empowering individuals to manage their own energy. And that means not forcing someone to sit in an office from nine to five and be productive through that time. I have always sort of found myself much more productive and much more of a work maniac if I'm able to wake up when I want to wake up work for a while in a burst, do a workout at noon, and then work some more, and then take another break at four and go for a walk, do some more work, you know, split it up in a way that that is conducive to my own energy. And I think everybody should be, not just CEOs, should be empowered to do that. And not just gig economy workers, right? So I think it's really important for companies to start embracing that and provide autonomy, flexibility, and sort of the structures that support that. One thing that I find a lot of people love hearing about, and I love hearing about, frankly, my audience does is an entrepreneur, a CEO's routine. You were just yeah. talking about it. You've got a dog. Yeah. Talk to me about what your strategy in your routine is. Yeah. So especially working from home, I think it's really hard to recognize when your productivity is diminishing. And especially as someone who works a lot, you know, sometimes I'm just grinding on something and I would be better served to pause, go to something else or take a break and come back. So I think that's definitely a challenge. So I try to set up my days in ways that have some of those forced breaks. So I'll get up, I'll do a short workout. I'll have some internal meetings. I try to reserve mornings for kind of productivity or like jamming on stuff that is a little more mentally complex. doesn't always happen. This morning I had six hours of straight meetings, but sometimes I can do it. And then I will do, if I didn't do a workout in the morning or if I did like a super short one, I'll do something shorter over lunch, just kind of change up my mental state through physical activity. The dog is really good because she helps keep, you know, I have to take her out. I have to zoom back into the real world and not the mental world for a few minutes. And then more work 
And then I will tend to evening hours, I will tend to find a break, like a one or two hour break, and then come back and do a little more work. So that's what works for me. I will have days where I try to shut off a little earlier, but I do find myself having sort of a burst of productivity in the evening and try to sort of follow that energy. So one thing that people in this age of a virtual world that startup founders clearly cannot do is go to an event, meet an investor Mm -hmm. and get the money to grow their company. So talk to me about that piece, whether you have plans to raise or whether you were like, Mm -hmm. damn, I can't just go to Silicon Valley, you know, find Andrew Chen and say, hey, (laughs) can I get 10 mil? Um, Track him down in the cafe. (laughs) Exactly. Talk to me about that piece. So I have never been one who really likes going to (laughs) networking events. Right. I've always found them a little painful. You know, you meet a couple people and you enjoy it and you're like, oh, I'm glad I went. But I have a really hard time motivating myself to go to those. So I'm not going to lie. I'm not too disappointed that those are not, you Mm -hmm. know, I'm not having Mm -hmm. to guilt myself into going right now. I think there's a lot of really interesting online community building happening that was happening anyway, but that has accelerated due to the pandemic. Upstream is an interesting app that has a lot of kind of fun events that I've met a couple of people at. LinkedIn, right? It sometimes gets a bad rap. And yes, there's a lot of spam, but you can also really meet and engage with people, particularly around sort of these micro influencers, hate the word, but micro influencers on LinkedIn and connecting with people who are thinking about the same challenges as you. And I think that extends to investors. We raised a tiny bit of friends and family money, but otherwise we've been really fortunate to be able to fund our builds internally from revenue. And I will probably do a bit more of a raise early this year just to go a little bit faster. But again, we've been lucky to be able to fund most of our kind of investment build R&D type work internally from revenue. So staying on a bit of a piece of micro influencers, I know you hate that word, but what I will say is there are some good people to follow on LinkedIn. And if you follow the right ones, you can really learn some good stuff. You being active in that space, who are a few that you follow that you're like, you know what, this is great. There's no spam. There's no link to some weird masterclass or whatever. Yeah. Well, you get that too. Um, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the listeners out there, who are they safe to listen to? <laughs> so I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation of everybody's name just because I see it written and don't actually hear it. But sure. Alyssa Fink, who used to be the CMO of Tableau, she's not super, super active, but she does speak at different events and will kind of be in interview content or on panels or things like that. And I think she just has such incredible wisdom. So I'm a big fan of hers. I really am becoming a fangirl here of Gong, but their CMO, I think his name is Udi. I really like his content on LinkedIn. Like, yes, some of it's Gong promotional, but even when it is, it's like a masterclass in how to do that well, still be interesting. Dave Gerhart, I am a member of his Patreon or whatever it's called community. Is it is it worth it? Should I join? I I don't know. I don't know yet. We did get actually a lead that may convert to a customer from it. So if that happens, then I have to say yes, the ten dollars per month is absolutely worth it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good ROI there for you. Exactly. That said, he has a lot of good content and, and sort of community engagement on LinkedIn. So if my answer was no, that would be the only reason why is that there's already so much engagement on LinkedIn with his with his community. Those are a couple of my go-tos. Awesome. Awesome. Do you have favorites? I'd say Chris Walker is mm, right yeah. up there. Dave Gerhardt would be on my personal list as well. Mm-hmm. There's a couple like, I, I'm blanking right now. There's I know it's hard to think of them. Um, 
I'm a big fan of Daniel Murray for marketing millennials. I think he's oh, got, yeah. you know how like, it's like the whole like say little without saying a lot thing. He just somehow crushes that. He, he'll, that. he'll just like write like two half sentences and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's good. That's it. Genius. I very much enjoy that. You know who I didn't mention who is maybe my favorite is Harry Dry with marketing examples. Man, I listened to his podcast. He's so good. He's so and good. And I think he's like 20 years old. Harry, how old are you? I don't, he's super young and it's just awesome. I think he's good because he's so self-deprecating. He's just like, man, like I'm successful because I suck at marketing. He, he was like, <laughs> I literally just did examples and it, uh, so good though. I think, I think that level of you know, humility just really draws a lot of people, which is really Yeah, great. I think so too, right? The ability to be self-deprecating. I also think he's tapped into something. There's like a really interesting lesson in his rise of subscribers and just in the success of his content around not only, yes, people loving examples, but also just people hungry for inspiration that is sort of like, one step removed from borrowing, right? We want to copy stuff and make it really easy on ourselves in a good way. And he does a really nice job of simplifying that and making our jobs easier on that front. One, two more people and I have to give them a, not have to, but I do want to, they're both going to be on this podcast. One is James Carberry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. James Carberry. And another is, I got to throw a shout out to a Canadian person she actually used to be a marketing mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. That's how I know her. But since then, she's really built her personal brand. Her name is Erin Blasky. Um, oh, great. She okay. just has really good content. And I'll send you her podcast once I do it uh, Please, uh, later. Yeah. Okay. Um, one question that always gets asked on this podcast is entrepreneurs work very hard. They bust <laughs> it. But we're all human. Every now and then, we be word. We burn up. How do you deal <laughs> yeah. with that? Talk to me about that. So... Look, I think the biggest thing for me that it comes down, there's a lot of factors at play here, but the biggest thing to me that it comes down to is being able to manage your energy, right? There's only so much that you can push yourself past a point of like, I'm motivated and I want to be doing this. And so it's knowing, you know, where you are in the overdrive, sort of the throttle. And if you're too much for too long, you've got to find a way to pull back and get a little bit of a reset. That doesn't mean that you can't work really, really hard and really crazy. You just have to be doing it in a way that's in line with like your natural energy. And if you try to fight that, if you try to fight sort of what is your body is telling you, what your sort of instinct and intuition are telling you, I think you're going to be in a bad shape. And I think that's when we're more susceptible to falling into burnout. Is there a specific thing that you notice uh, that you're like, ooh, I'm on the verge of burning out? Like a specific cue. That's a really good question. I think we probably all have our own unique cues that are sort of the things that are precursors for us to a potential burnout. I think learning your own precursors are really important. For me, it's when I get, and I have a business coach and she talks about being acting out of sovereignty, which is sort of like, you know, rooted and standing straight versus pushing or sort of collapsing. And so for me, this idea of collapsing, like if I'm, I just feel sort of collapsed in my posture, in my mental state, I know that that's not the time to push through, that that's the time to just relax, like release the mental grip of of whatever it is I'm I'm obsessing over and come back with a fresh set of eyes, whether that's just a good night's sleep, whether that's a long weekend, you know, whatever that is, that's a cue for me. Last question before the shameless plug portion of the episode, which for my guests that Mm -hmm. come on, you talk to me for 40 minutes, you definitely deserve to have two minutes to pitch your service. But before we get into that, 
I want to stay on that point. Talk to me about the value of coaching, how you found your coach. I've heard a lot about CEOs mm -hmm. having CEO coaches. Talk to me about that. I found it incredibly valuable, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is just blind spots, right? Being able to have someone who can act as, yes, a mirror, but also to sort of show you areas that you're not quite seeing. And then two, from an accountability standpoint. And sure, you could argue, like, you could download an app that would be your accountability buddy or whatever. But I think having someone who's really invested and who helps hold you accountable, she'll text me and say, text me, you know, how you're feeling here, you know, try this for the next week, three minutes, twice a day of XYZ, and then asks how I'm doing on it. So just that accountability results in small, like baby steps and incremental progress. And that incremental progress really compounds and adds up. So I have found a lot of value in it. Awesome. We're getting to the end of the episode. So I know we've talked about a lot about your business, but mm -hmm. if there's one plug you want to give, you know, how can people get in touch with you? Is there a call to action? What do we got here? Yeah, look, if you're a B2B marketer and you're looking at your content and you're like, man, this is really boring. And you want to think about ways to help drive growth with more engaging content, particularly around social proof, featuring your customers or even your employees, get in touch with us. I'm super happy to just have me or our video strategist hop on a call and chat about ideas, share what is working for other people. And if there's work to be done from that together, awesome. If not, no harm done. So yeah, reach out. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Angela Ferrante, or our website is getlaudable.com. Awesome. Thank you for coming on, Angela. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Makeshift CMO. If you want to follow what we're doing to help early stage startups, founders, and marketers subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. For all business inquiries, please email us at bruce at thebannermarketing.co or follow us on IG at banner.co.